Thanks, band. And good morning, guys. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, welcome those of you at home uh, tuning in, as Ellen said. Glad you guys are joining uh, us as well. Um, we are going to dive into our series uh, back in Big Questions here. I did have one announcement before we uh, got there. Uh, next Sunday, August 9, um, we are going to have a guest preacher, which we haven't had in like 12 years as a church. Uh, not much need to anymore with all the elders that we have, but um, Davis Johnson from Hope Community Church downtown, which is our sending church, one of the pastors there uh, named Davis Johnson is going to come and, and preach for us. He's a good friend of mine, a great preacher, and um, he's willing to serve our church uh, in this way, which we're excited for. Uh, he was slated to do this last year, actually, uh, when we thought Spencer was going to be on sabbatical. And uh, Jesse, our uh, third most frequent preacher, is also taking a year off the overseer team, and so it was kind of a, uh, a reach to have uh, someone help a little bit uh, with the preaching schedule um, when there were supposed to be three of us here. But we just kept him in the calendar when Spence decided not to take his sabbatical. Uh, it's just the pandemic happened and all this stuff and just felt like we just we need a break. And so um, we're excited to have him come and fill the pulpit. I will still be here to introduce him and all that, but just wanted to prepare you guys for that uh, since it's uh, kind of a new thing, and, uh, but an exciting thing for us for at least a week here in the summer to do this. So um, with that said, let's transition here to, um, to big questions. So if you're, if you're new uh, or just joining us after a few weeks or something or maybe a couple of months, we um, are in a series uh, called Big Questions, which is a chance for us as pastors to preach questions you guys have given us as pastors or questions we've kind of asked each other uh, or ourselves that we wanted to address topically this, uh, this summer before going into a series this fall, um, which uh, we'll announce a little bit later, but uh, back into a book series, uh, Bible book series here uh, in, in mid-September. Uh, but today's big question, which is a really great one, is essentially what is sin? That's the umbrella question. Um, but the more particular questions were, and I'll read an excerpt here, uh, what is, so what is sin? Uh, but then going a kind of past that, is it different than not glorifying God? Are all sins really equally bad? I have heard of an ultimate sin and seven deadly sins. How do these fit into the idea that all sins are equal, if they are, and our sins being forgiven? Are these sins, uh, so ultimate sins, bigger sins, are they also forgiven? All right, so um, what I want to do today is uh, walk through uh, basically a biblical definition of sin, uh, starting small and going big, or maybe starting obvious uh, to some of you at least, and then going uh, to the less obvious uh, kind of sphere as well, because the Bible kind of operates in both, in both spheres. Uh, if, if you pick up a, um, a theological dictionary and open to like the, the page of sin, it has like sin, comma, a variety of things, because there's so many facets to the defini definition of sin. It's not just one definition, it's like pages of, um, you know, sin, comma, uh, inherited, sin, comma, original, sin, comma, um, you know, ultimate, or sin, comma, um, uh, imputed, or things like that. So there's different facets to, to, to the definition of sin that, uh, that come with this greater idea of what is wrongdoing and so forth, and what's the problem that the Bible uh, claims to or that Christ uh, comes to fix and so forth. Uh, but what I want to do today is just kind of define it from a, a 30,000-foot view, but kind of do it through the lens of story as well, uh, and, and not just be a talking dictionary for, uh, for 30 minutes here or anything like that. And so uh, but I will kind of give away where I'm going here by saying that sin is more than just doing bad things to other people. That is part of it, yes. It builds off the basic idea that there is evil in the world, which most acknowledge, but also a great evil inside of us. And, and this is increasingly becoming 
the crux of the matter for many people today spiritually, it, it is so important to understand what sin is. And it kind of becomes this neutered term uh, for us, especially in a culture that kind of increasingly is saying that it, you know, it's, it's hard to be wrong about things and it's harder to kind of look at ourselves as imperfect. Uh, and so sin kind of gets diluted and that can, that can kind of seep into the church and the way Christians view things as well if we're not careful. So it's so important to understand what it really is and to feel the weight of, and gravity of our offenses to, to God. So think of it this way. If a true theology of sin is like taking a shot of whiskey, so meaning it's meant to burn on the way down and wake us up, if we mix that with a gallon of I'm not that bad water first and then drink it, it won't affect us in the same way. And that's where many people are, even Christians today. They, they believe we're essentially good. We can accomplish whatever we want to if we put our minds to it. And what we really need is a religion that will just pat us on the back and give us a couple of things to do every day so we can feel better about ourselves. And once we go there, all of a sudden we start to question things like the doctrine of hell. And then we start to question things like the necessity of the cross and why it was so bloody and visceral. And all of a sudden we wake up one day and we're not Christian anymore. And that might sound like a stretch, but it's not. It happens every day all around the world. Uh, and it's a slippery slope. And, and many times it starts with a watered-down, man-made definition of sin and what the problem is. And so we have to know what this is. We have to define it right and properly and heavily uh, to understand the gospel in its true light as well. Okay? So first we're going to start with this. Sin is an umbrella term for acts and thoughts of malice. Let me read from Romans 1 uh, to start here today, which is one of the sin lists we get in the New Testament, kind of a helpful place to begin, uh, and then we'll kind of go from there. So Romans 1.28 and following says this, And since they did not see fit, so, so speaking of all of humanity here, since they, humanity, fallen humanity, did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. All right, so other biblical lists include things like sexual sin, um, idolatry, stealing. You know, this list is not exhaustive, obviously. It's not the point. It's just a starting point. But it just happens to be a substantial list in the Bible. And it's long and it's varied which is helpful too. Notice you have disobedience to parents uh, right next to murder or in the same context as murder, right? So it's a very varied list of like what we think about or should think about when we think about sin and wrongdoing and acts and thoughts of malice, things that are not at the heart of God, the antithesis of who he is being the essence of good. But notice a couple of things here I'll point out just for time's sake today. I'm not going to go through all of these, but a couple of things at the bottom I want to focus on the idea of sin being heartlessness. And at the end here, it mentions um, willingly knowing that certain things are so bad, they are deserving of death, yet still doing them anyway, and also approving 
of others doing these, uh, these same acts and, and same types of sin. So to expand on both of these, first, heartlessness is the same thing as hate, which is the opposite of love. And so sin is not loving God and not loving others. And, and by love, I don't mean agreement. Love is not agreement. It is serving and suffering for another person. It's kindness amidst disagreement. And so uh, and this is a big deal today, right, when online debate is all the rage, uh, and not just online, in person as well, of course. It's, uh, all the, it's all the rage, right? And so I think sin, or the opposite of sin, would be kindness amidst agreement, which means sin would be not wanting the best for those that, that, that disagree with us. So sin is not wanting the best for our enemies. And so I think when we apply uh, you know, the, the Christian worldview to this, and so speaking to Christians, particularly for believers, sin is not loving other Christians as Christ commanded us or loving our enemies as, as again, he did, he did for us, but instead putting ourselves first. I'll talk more about that a little bit later on, but that'd be kind of more a particular slant to say for, for Christians, sin is not loving other Christians well, and it's not loving our enemies uh, as, as Christ teaches, all right? But heartlessness, I think, also speaks to how much the heart is the center. This is important because it means we shouldn't just look out there to define sin. Like, sin is out there in the world. These people, these bad people think these things and do these things, and that's what sin is. It's not really how the Bible talks. It does do that, but it's more about sin being inside of us. It's very personalized. Sin is in the heart, not just the action. And so as Jesus says in Matthew 5, 27 and 28, He says, you have heard that it was said, and he quotes one of the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit sexual sin or adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so we can kind of see here how deep the rabbit hole is already starting to go, right? It's not just on the surface, but it digs deep into the heart. It's not just an action, but it's a thought. It's a desire. It's wanting something that shouldn't be wanted. And so here Jesus even dials up the Ten Commandments and says, actually, uh, every time you lust, you do do the same thing as like a physical act of adultery. You're committing the same type of uh, treason really against God, the same type of offense against his good and uh, perfect rule over the earth. So these lists and these types of teachings are meant to be kind of a mirror for us. They're not just meant to be kind of a gauge by which we sort of, you know, uh, look at the world and so forth, but meant to be like, Amir, they're meant to kind of dial up the, the guilt meter. The needle is supposed to be spiking here a bit, and the rabbit hole is supposed to be going really deep. Something is critically wrong in our hearts. We haven't done bad. It, the, people haven't done wrong things necessarily. Well, they have, but that's not the extent of it, right? It's that something is critically broken in our hearts that, that just can't be shaken. The other piece here is to expand on this idea of not wanting to do good, which I think is helpful when we talk about sin as well. So it's not just things like, you know, uh, malicious anger and, and haughtiness and pride and, and sexual sin, but also not wanting to do the good. But the opposite is also true as well, when, and that is wanting to be good but not being able to. C.S. Lewis says, No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good, which I love that. You know how bad you are when you try really hard to be good and, and you can't. Uh, Romans 7 says this from a, a more of a biblical perspective when Paul says, as a Christian, speaking as a Christian, this is a Christian experience type thing, as a Christian, what I want to do, I do not do. 
but what I hate, I do. And he goes on to say, who will set me free from this cursed existence? Who will set me free from this body of death? And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's part of a greater argument there in Romans 7 in context. All right, what I want to do, I don't do, but what I hate, I do. And again, notice how when sin is talked about here, it's talked about in a very personal, personal way. It's, it's not a things are bad out there and we need to fix it, but more of a I am my biggest problem in the world. I am the biggest problem with, in my life. And it's a heart issue, not an action issue uh, primarily. One of my favorite comics, uh, Calvin and Hobbes comics, is this one, which I'm, I don't know if you can read that or not. Um, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but uh, is when uh, Calvin says to Hobbes about getting a lot of stuff for Christmas and what is going to uh, appease Santa, basically. He says, do I really have to be good or just have to act good in the bottom left there? So kind of processing, like, what's Santa looking for here, right? Do I have to, like, do I have to be good on the inside or do I actually have to or just act good? See the difference? So there's actually a lot of Calvin and Hobbes comics that hit on morality like this. Uh, I, I love that, that he does this. But, um, but this is really insightful, actually, when you think about the problem with morality, if you're just a moralist, is that, yeah, you can maybe force yourself into doing good, but what about your motives? And are you truly good on the inside, like in the heart? And the answer, at least biblically speaking, is absolutely not. No one is. The Bible says no one no one does good. No one is good. We're born into sin, born into wretchedness. And as we just talked about, sin is heartlessness. It's, it's being heartless, not just acts of evil, but it's being a, a heartless uh, in, individual, and it has to do with intentions as well. Or think about the idea of circumcision in the Old Testament. Those of you who know uh, a little bit about this, how in the story there was movement in the Old Testament from circumcising the flesh, so Boys, when they were eight days old, were to be circumcised, and that was done specifically by other people, right? So with human hands, but there's movement from that to God saying, like in Deuteronomy, what I really want is for you to circumcise your hearts. And in that movement, Israelites kind of being left with this, well, I can't do that. Like, I can circumcise my son. I can, I can be a part of this, like, this law of circumcision, which was like a covenantal badge of being an Israelite and so forth, I can be a part of that, I can do that, but I can't circumcise my heart. And that's what we're talking about. Doing good by way of circumcising boys by the law in the Old Testament was doing nothing for the heart. And so God was moving them from the physical, from the outward to the inside, so they were left empty-handed. They were left with this I haven't done this. I can't do this. I can't physically, with my hands, circumcise my heart. And so they'd look to God, right? And we'll get to that a little bit later on, but that was part of the point. But that leads us a little bit deeper here into this next section, which is to further define sin as rebellion against God. So I said we're going to start like small and get big or start obvious and get less obvious. This starts to get into the less obvious, depending on where you guys are with your uh, you know, prior knowledge of theology or reading of the Bible or so forth. But um, for some of you, I'm guessing, a little bit less, uh, less obvious. Sin is 
rebellion against God. It means not just missing the mark, uh, but it means an, a deeper heart issue of rebellion against God's good and perfect kingly rule over all the earth, including our very lives and bodies, spirits and souls. So going back to Genesis 3, so right before this, God said to Adam and Eve after he made the first human beings, he said, don't eat, you, you, have, all, you have free reign of all the, the, the trees and fruit of the whole garden, but don't eat the fruit of this one specific tree. Then picking up in Genesis 3, verse 4, the serpent, who was Satan, said, you will not certainly die, because God said if, if you eat this, you'll, you'll die. If you eat this one fruit, you'll perish. But the serpent said, you will not certainly die, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And here's the key, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. If you eat the fruit, you'll be like God, and you'll know good and evil. And then they ate. They thought, yeah, the talking snake has it figured out. Uh, I buy it. I'm all in. And they both, they both eat. Eve first, then Adam. But the question here is, how does the story of the advent of sin uh, tell us about the definition of sin? So this is when sin comes into the world, and so it's a, it's a very important place to go in the Bible when we, as believers, look at what actually is it, and how do we define it? So going back to what I said before, sin is rebellion against God, but here's four ways, I think, and I'm basically just kind of, you know, clicking on rebellion here, and this is an expansive definition, but... Sin is rebellion against God in these four ways. Pride, unbelief, idolatry, and works-based righteousness. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, has a chapter on pride as he calls the chief sin. Not because he's trying to rank the sins, but because pride is always in other sins. Because sin when we sin willingly in any way, it is to say to God, I know better than you. I'm smarter than you. I'm more woke than you. I'm more compassionate than you. I'm just simply a better God than you. And so we don't always think that, of course, when we willingly sin, but that's kind of what's going on behind the curtains. It's, it's a, a stance against God. It's a, it's a showing of arrogance. It's to say that this is your standard. This is your kind of revelation but I just have a better way to live. This, this will nourish me, even though you said it, won't, it wouldn't. I, I just believe it will. And that kind of, again, goes back to the serpent's lie or his deception where he says, you'll be like God. You'll be sufficient unto yourselves. So sin is really self-actualization. It's not trusting in God, but trusting in the self or trusting someone else other than God which is the same thing as unbelief. It's sin is building a giant tower into the sky and thinking, look at what we've done. If we keep going, we'll literally reach into heaven itself and nothing will be impossible for us, which is a direct quote from Genesis 11 when um, the nations were building the Tower of Babel. Now, if you remember, the, the tree that Adam and Eve sinfully ate from was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was not called the tree of wickedness, or the tree of Satan, or the tree of darkness. The tree they weren't supposed to eat from was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so, extrapolating from that, sin is saying, we are able to know good and evil, the difference between the two, and we are able to bear that burden ourselves and become a law unto ourselves. We will be like God. 
And this is actually what true idolatry is all about. Um, If you guys remember the story in Exodus 32 of when Israel, after they were liberated from Egypt by God, built a golden calf. You guys remember this story? You've read this before? They build a golden calf and it becomes this, um, you know, this, this initial, just shockingly quick display of idolatry that makes you scratch your head and think, what is going on? They were just saved from Egypt by the God of the, the one true God of the universe who said, don't do this. Or is the process of saying this and Moses is on the mountain and they're doing it. They're breaking, they're breaking God's good and holy law right here in the face of, of him writing it and in the wake of him saving them. But if you remember this story, when this happened, did you know that the people here, when they built the calf, they were actually trying to build an image of the one true God. So they're not making a different God here. They're not fashioning a calf to be, you know, uh, reflective of a pagan God of fertility or something. They're actually trying to make an image of the one true God of the Bible. They're actually trying to say, this God just saved us from Egypt. Let's make an image of him and worship them. So then the question becomes, well, why is it so bad then? Why does God condemn them for making an image of him and worshiping him through the the figurative lens of this golden calf? Why was that so bad? And the answer is, because they made it with their hands. They fashioned it. They did it. That's why it was so wicked. This is why God makes the second command of don't make an image of me. It's not that the silver and gold shrines are bad, though they are. It's the fact that people made them with their hands and bowed down to the works of their hands. They were literally here bowing down to what they had done, what they had made, how amazing they were. Idolatry is worship of our religious effort. Our efforts to do good. It's the worship of that. It's worship of our humanitarianism and volunteerism and moralism. It's a replacement of God with a broken notion of goodness. That's what sin is. A replacement of God. This goes right back to Genesis 3. A replacement of God with the self and a replacement of God with a broken notion of goodness, as if it was achievable apart from him. Another way the Bible says this, same thing, is in Romans 1, humans have exchanged the glory of God for the glory of other things. Or in John 12, when when it says, people love the glory that comes from man, more than the glory that comes from God. See how this is wonderfully descriptive of what just happened back in Exodus 32? They, they love the glory of what they made rather than the glory of the invisible God who reveals himself on his terms alone. By grace, not by what we do, but by his grace and love and gracious choice to come into the world to save us. People love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And so again, sin is like a turning in on ourselves. It's why self-glorifying uses of social media is increasingly being tied to anxiety, depression, and suicide. We just weren't meant to glorify ourselves. And we shouldn't be shocked, especially as, well, as Christians anyway, shouldn't be shocked when it makes us unhappy. 
It's like a cancer to our souls. So the third category of definition here is to say sin is the precursor to death. And so I'm trying to escalate this here uh, a bit by starting small again and going big. Sin is is everything we've said before, but it, it is ultimately the precursor to death. And all have sinned. And so all are dead. Ephesians 2.1 says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And in Romans 3, it says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then here's the death image. Their throat is an open grave. The Bible's not like mincing words, right? Like it's it, our, as sinful people, like when we open our mouths, it's like there's rotting bones and decaying flesh in there. Like that's, that's, that's how the Bible is trying to describe our spiritual state. That's the state in which we, we cry out for help. Not as I have a smudge on my arm or I have a little bit of a headache, but we're in the grave. Our throats are open graves. We were, it's past tense for Christians, but present tense for all of humanity in general, we're dead in our transgressions and and sins. And so, even after all we've already looked at, like if we're still thinking that the Bible is exaggerating here or using hyperbole, you know, that we really do have a good streak in us and that it's possible to overcome our own sin if we just tap into that good. Or like Pelagius said, the heretic in the, in the, uh, in the um, uh, 400s um, who said that sin is like, or Christians are just in the habit of sinning and that the solution is to get out of the habit of sinning. And he was the guy that Augustine kind of combated with theologically and, and all of that. But if that's where we're at, the Bible like lovingly offers this language back to us to say, no. You're not in the habit of sinning, you're actually dead. You're lying there dead. And dead people can't move, they can't do anything, right? And so spiritually speaking, our throats are open graves. We're dead in our sins. We're dead in our transgressions. No one's righteous. The best of people are like rotten corpses. And many times it's, you know, it's people's bestness that's the problem, right? Because... In our bestness, we can replace God with that bestness, and so then it becomes a sin. So we see how the actual striving for good apart from God becomes the pride, it becomes the wickedness, it becomes the self-actualization, it becomes the idolatry, it becomes the worship of the works of our hands. We might as well be right there with the golden calf, Like, no one in the room has fashioned a golden calf, I'm guessing, and worshipped it. But all of you and I, we actually have done that because we've all worshipped the works of our hands. We've all thought we were something when we were nothing. We've all been prideful. We've all compared ourselves to others, whether for better or worse. We've compared ourselves to others. And so we've all done it. Romans 3 continues, Now, whatever the law says... It says to those who are under it, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. This is key here. Listen to this. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified or made righteous or perfected or saved in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That last part is key. 
Through the law, through the Ten Commandments, things like that, comes knowledge of sin. It, it, it exposes sin rather than saves. So what this doesn't say is, through the law comes the ability to overcome sin. You see the difference? It doesn't say through the law comes your ability to overcome it. It says through the law comes knowledge. It comes this, wow, I knew I was imperfect, but now, now I know how much I've missed the mark. And Paul talks more about this elsewhere in Romans where he says, like covetousness, wanting someone else's stuff, for example, which is one of the Ten Commandments not to do that, that existed before the law. But when the law came in and said, don't covet, we knew all the more how we couldn't not covet. It exposed it. You know, it's like saying to a two-year-old, don't touch the blinking red button. And that, like, that's like the only thing they can think about now is the blinking red button. Like, why did you mention the blinking red button? It's like, that's what the law is and what it does. It, it increases the problem. It doesn't make it better. It increases the problem. It exposes it to borrow language from elsewhere in the Old Testament. It imprisons us under sin. It imprisons us. It makes us more chained up because we're dead. It's, it's sort of like um, in, the, in uh, Thor. It's sort of like it's Thor's hammer. It's laid on us and we can't move because we're unworthy. Because we're dead. And, and, and we come to understand this in the Bible like the Bruce Willis character in the movie Sixth Sense like halfway through he realizes or at the end he realizes he's been dead the whole time. Spoiler alert, sorry, if you haven't seen it. He's been dead the whole time. Like, when we read and, and get this definition right, we realize, oh, I've been dead the whole time. Like, this isn't, the Bible's not just giving me a few things to do. It's a story showing me how dead I am. And that I'm already past the point of, of like, testing in that sense. Like, life's not a test. How much good can you do? How much evil can you abstain from? This is not how the Bible talks. We're already dead, all right? So I could go on and on today. Like I said, I don't want to be a talking dictionary here today for you all and bore you to tears. Um, but I, I did want to talk about this as though it were part of the story and, and to relate it then to Christ's love. And so one question you might have at this point is, you know, gosh, like, why does the Bible lay it on so thick? Like, or I might ask, like, is the whiskey burning yet on the way down? You know, like it, it should be. I hope it is. But here's the better question. How does all of this shape our understanding of the gospel? How, does it, how is it a part of the story? Not lists, not dictionary definitions. How is it a part of the story shaping our understanding of the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection? That's what it's supposed to do. It's, it's the background against which the foreground of Christ shines all the brighter. And contrast in this piece of art is critically important. Critically important. It makes it pop. It makes the gospel pop. And so the answer to this question is it shapes it in every way because, and here's the best news you'll ever hear, Jesus' blood is sufficient to save us from all types of sin. Everything we just talked about, Jesus died for in your and my hearts. Isn't that incredible? It's sufficient. All sin, 
all types of sin, the smallest of things to the biggest. One of the questions for today was, are the really bad sins also forgiven, essentially? Are the really bad ones, the ultimate ones, pride, unbelief, are those ones also forgiven? And the answer is, yes, even those, all of them, when we trust in Jesus Christ alone for that, for that forgiveness. And so, do you see how much sweeter this is when your and my doctrine or understanding of sin is as big as the Bible actually teaches? It's meant to elicit desperation. Do you see how much more sense this makes of the bloody, visceral death of Christ when we understand what is he actually dying for? What about when the Bible says, just very simply, in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Christ died for our, what? Sins. Well, what is it? What does sin mean? We have to know. You know, does, does sin mean oranges? You know, no. It doesn't mean Christ died for our oranges. That's a dumb example. But, you know, it obviously doesn't mean that. Sin is everything we've talked about and more. And it's not just being disobedient to parents. It's not just I lied once when I was in college. It's not just the idea of, yeah, no one's perfect. It's much worse. It's heartlessness. It's motive. It's rebellion. It's unbelief. It's worshiping the self. It's idolatry. It's spiritual death. It's spiritual rotting flesh. And so, Christ then being crucified was enveloped in all of this. And when he liberated us, he actually did from hell. And, and he was undoing the curse of death from our bodies too. In fact, if we were to add on one more thing, so I had three things defining sin earlier. This is, kinda, this is a fourth, um, so if you're a note taker. This is a big one though. If we were to add one more definition of what is sin, our response would be, and maybe this will surprise you, but one of our responses should be Jesus. What is sin? For a short period of time, 2,000 years ago, for six hours on that cross, Jesus was our sin. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. We'll start here. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin. The same one who knew no sin, who never sinned, he became our sin so that in him and what he does, we might be saved and perfected we might become the righteousness of God, though Christ himself was the righteousness of God. Do you see the exchange idea we have here? He's not telling you how to be a better version of yourself. He's becoming all the bad things you ever did and then being cursed and nailed to a tree to atone for it. Man, that's better news, isn't it? And that's the posture that God constantly that Christ and God constantly have before us every day. He doesn't change hats from that once in your life to moral rabbi teacher Jesus who now has all this stuff for you to do. This is, this is the gospel every day of your life. My life. It should be. Colossians 2, same thing. God forgave us all our sins and trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so think about this verse for a second. Should be a question that comes to your mind. The question is, 
what's being nailed to the cross here? Is it our debt or is it Jesus? And the answer is yes. It's both. Because in one sense, both are kind of the same for these six hours. Jesus here uh, or elsewhere in the, the Gospel of John also likens himself to a serpent. Serpents are unclean, devil-like animals, according to the Bible. In John 3, Jesus says, and he's referring to an Old Testament story here where there's this plague of snakes biting people and people are dying from the venom. And God says, uh, fashion a pole and put a snake on the end. Hold it up. And when people look at the snake on the pole, they'll be saved. And the snakes will stop biting and they'll be saved from the venom. All right, so kind of a weird story when you're in the Old Testament. You're like, that's just odd. Why can't God just heal him, right? The reason he's doing this is because it foreshadows this. And so what Jesus is saying here, just like that, or just as Moses lifted up the snake on the pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, so speaking of Jesus, must be lifted up and pinned to a pole. In this case, a tree. That everyone who looks at him and trusts in him and believes in him may have eternal life in him. But do you see how there's a connection here between the stories? We're being bitten by sin snakes, the venom streaming through our blood, but Jesus becomes the snake to save us from the snakes. Jesus becomes the serpent, like the serpent, on the snake, which is an unclean sin animal, at least symbolically in the Bible. He becomes that, to save us from the snakes and serve as the anti-venom. All right? So, so again, we could go on, but the point is, Jesus died for all types of sins by becoming sin. He died for the smallest sins and the biggest sins, the cleanest sins, whatever that means, and the dirtiest sins, the known sins, and even the unknown sins. There, there's a whole theme I didn't talk about today about unknown sins in the Old Testament where people don't even realize they're sinning, but there had to be sacrifices for those sins as well, which pointed ahead to Christ, meaning he's dying for things we don't even realize we're doing. What about those? Talk about like the failure of moralism, right? Like if we're like coming from this perspective of the point is to be good and to cancel out our own debt, how can you cancel out what you don't know you even did? You can't address it. It's literally impossible. In other words, you can't save yourselves, nor can I. Unknown sin is this big, big problem for law keepers. Big problem for self-perceived good people. Big problem for moralists. But not for Christ. He can solve it by dying for the, un, the unspoken, the unknown ones as well. So, Jesus died for all those. He died for sins that send people to prison and he died for sins that are culturally acceptable but not to God. And so when he came to save you guys, what I would love for you, for me, for all of us to leave here with is he knew everything about us and yet he died for us. He knew the darkest corners of our heart. He knew that all these types of sins were in us, at least by motive and spiritually. And yet he loved us anyway by becoming a curse for us on the cross so we might be spared. 
When you, when you learn about sin and read about sin in the Bible, it should go past the point of definition to the point of, and not to the point of just, I should not do that anymore, though that's fine, but to the point of looking at him and saying, look at what he became for us on the cross. Look at what he became for you. He didn't die to start a political revolution. He didn't die for some ideal or cause. People love to make Jesus into that kind of thing. But he died knowing you and me personally. When he was dying there, he knew you personally and, what, and that you would be created someday, that you would have life physically someday. And he died because he wanted to spare you and me. Isn't that incredible? He knew we are fully known and yet loved. Fully known in all of our sins. And yet this is what, this is what he did for us. I mean, that's, it's mind-blowing. It's, it should close our mouths, like the Bible says, in a good way, where we don't have a defense anymore. We just have worship for God. Knowing all these things lie at the core of who we are, he still died for us in love uh, to bring us to God. That's the gospel. That's the gospel, right? Okay, here's one more verse. Matthew 12, 31, Jesus speaking, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. All right, so plot twist right here a little bit. It's like after all we've said, wait a minute, there is one thing though that's not forgiven um, and Jesus talks about this and, and without being able to go into this too exhaustively today just for time's sake, uh, what, what's happening here is Jesus is saying, don't miss the first part, everything's forgiven. Every blasphemy which is cursing God, speaking against God, speaking against Jesus, all of that's forgiven. Every single sin, the, the, the worst kinds he bled for them. His blood is sufficient. Except, though, when you reject the Holy Spirit. And what he means by this is rejecting what the Spirit represents in the Bible. What, what he means is rejecting the work of the Spirit. And the work of the Spirit, biblically, is to bring conviction of sin and happiness and comfort in salvation. It's essentially to make Jesus famous in our lives. And so, it's the opposite, then, of living by the religious works of our hands. The Bible calls that the works of the flesh. The work of the Spirit is the opposite. It's, it's to say, another way to say, we're saved by Him blowing across our bodies and souls, right? We're saved by the wind of the Spirit just causing our hearts to, to, to turn towards Jesus with faith, uh, Jesus says in John 3. So, rejecting the Spirit ongoingly, without change, is unforgivable. But, but of course it is, right? Saying that the blasphemy of the Spirit is unforgivable is the same thing as saying people that don't receive Jesus are unforgiven. It's the same exact thing. It's just saying when you reject the fact that God alone saves and you don't save yourself, flesh doesn't save you, God's Spirit saves. When you reject the gospel, in other words, and continue in that rejection until your dying breath, you're not forgiven. But, but of course that's the case, or most of us would have maybe come in the room believing that because we don't believe everyone is saved. The Bible does not say everybody is saved, only those that believe in Christ and trust in him. As Jesus said, those who look to the pole, to the cross, and believe in him, right? Those ones are saved. Those ones are, are saved from the venom of sin and will be forever. So 
So quite simply, guys, we are left with this. Um, after everything has been said here, we're left with this idea that all sins will be forgiven, all of them. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. And these sins for Christians, these sinless, will become past tense. Not present tense, but past tense as our identity is changed into sons and daughters. But reject Christ and what he's done for you. Reject the fact that salvation comes from God alone, not from us, by anything we ever do. And we won't be forgiven. Forgiveness is in Christ. Not in any other name and not by any other work. Only by his blood. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much, God, for, um, for today, for this great question. Uh, God, help us to continue to wrestle with this. Uh, we, we need to understand, uh, like Romans 3 said, kind of broadly about humanity, but um, it's still kind of always true in some way because the old still remains for us as believers. We don't really understand. No one understands fully. Uh, so, Father, I pray that you would help us uh, to grow, uh, to learn, Father, to, to feel the weight and gravity of this constantly so that, uh, not to identify ourselves with it, uh, but to see it's part of our story. And, and every day, we don't graduate from this story. It is the ultimate meta narrative that informs everything, not just our lives, but the world's story as well, that everything is broken. A sin is pervasive. It's contagious. It's inherited. It's in our blood and heart and DNA, not just a few actions we did in high school. So, God, uh, I pray that you'd raise us from the dead, help us to have this backdrop against which the gospel would be cherished, eaten, partaken in communion, sung about, celebrated, smiled in, taken a deep breath of relief through all the days of our life. May it be our mantra, God, we, we pray, and we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.